Um, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Nahum, the prophecy of Nahum. It's a hard book to find. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and grab that and turn to page 829. Page 829, we're going to look at Nahum. If you know how to read, I know there's some babies in here and some kids, that's fine. But if you know how to read, go, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Nahum. It'll help you follow along better than just listening since we're going to be going through the verses. So go ahead and grab that and let's turn to Nahum chapter 1. We'll read chapter 1 here together, but we'll, we'll be reading the whole thing, the rest of it, as we go along. Hear God's word from the prophecy of Nahum chapter 1. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord, Yahweh, that's God's personal name, Yahweh, whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. Yahweh takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in love. Yahweh will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up, and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. Yahweh is good. A stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against Yahweh, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time, for they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against Yahweh and is a wicked counselor. This is what Yahweh says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down, and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. Yahweh has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. This is the word of the Lord. May his word dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you for your word. And now we pray what Ross quoted earlier in the prayer of confession. We pray that your word would not return void or empty. 
but that you would accomplish a specific purpose in our lives. We're leaning on your promise and your power, not our own, not to preach, not to hear. Open our eyes to the glories of Christ in this text and speak a specific word to each one here from this passage that would set their, their lives in a more blessed, joyful, and hopeful trajectory. Interrupt us now, Father, and change us forever, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were told that you would prematurely die if you went out that certain door, a, sp- a certain door, so there you are before, two doors. If you went out that certain door, you would die prematurely if you went out that door and walked down that particular path. But you would survive if you went the other way. What would you do? Answer's obvious. You would go towards the door where you wouldn't prematurely die. Do you know the story of Lot and his wife? They were escaping from Sodom and Gomorrah. And God, or the angel, told Lot and his family, don't turn back. And Lot's wife didn't trust the angel as fire was raining down from heaven. A spectacular sight, to be sure. Of course, your curiosity would make you want to turn around. Just get a quick peek. And, and the angel warned them that if you don't, just don't look back. And Lot's wife disobeyed and looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt, and she died right there. There's a warning. Don't go that way. She does it. She dies. No one here wants to recklessly walk into a permanent tragedy. No one here wants to recklessly walk into suffering without any purpose. But the problem is, in Los Angeles, in the 10 million in Metro Los Angeles, the 1.3 million in South Los Angeles, and the 80,000 who live in Bellflower, the problem is that many are recklessly walking into a permanent tragedy and an eternal suffering, an unspeakable suffering. Many are, most are. And people don't see the danger they're in. They just don't see it. They don't get it. They might have heard it, but they don't get that they are in danger. Jonathan Edwards has the imagery of you hanging over the fires of hell by a spider web. And at any moment, that spider web is going to break. And you have no power to keep yourself up. People are dancing on the brink of hell and don't even realize it. What if you thought you were okay and you really weren't? Are you sure that if you died today, you would avoid God's judgment in hell and be with God's people in heaven before Christ returns to bring heaven to earth? Don't you want to be sure? You don't have to be confused about whether you will die and go to hell or not. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to ignore the judgment warnings. You don't have to rely on your own intuition and feelings. Ah, I feel like I got pretty good chances. You don't have to rely on that. You can know the truth, and the truth can set you free. So here's the main goal from the book of Nahum. The main idea that I want you to grasp, and the main goal for your life, the main call. You'll face God's judgment for your evil. Unless you take refuge in Jesus with his people. I said that as a 
statement of fact. I'll say it one more time that way and I'll, I'll make it a command. You'll face God's judgment for your evil unless you take refuge, unless you take refuge in Jesus with his people. To put it in command form, you'll face God's judgment for your evil. Therefore, take refuge in Jesus with his people. Now, there are three steps. If you're going to truly take refuge in Jesus with his people, Nahum gives us three steps that you progress towards taking refuge in Jesus. Okay? We're going to look at these steps one at a time. The first step is recognizing. The second step is envisioning. And the third step is trembling. Okay? Recognizing, envisioning, and trembling. If you're going to take refuge in Jesus, you need to recognize first, then envision, and then tremble. So recognize. And those, are, those three steps are with each chapter. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, okay? So chapter 1, recognize. What do I want you to recognize? What does Nahum want you to recognize? He wants you to recognize the judge. Because we don't see the judgment because we don't see a judge. And we don't know who the judge is. We don't know what the judge is like. And so we have false confidence and presumptions, or we're just terrified, but we have no truth to stand on. So we need to recognize the judge, and here in chapter 1, here are five things to recognize about the judge, okay? If you're taking notes, even if you're not, just think of these are the five things that Nahum wants you to recognize about the judge. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 2, look at 1, verse 2. So Nahum is writing to Nineveh. Let me just set up the context here. He's writing to Nineveh. Who else was sent to Nineveh via fish? Jonah, right? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and when he went to Nineveh, he preached, and did they repent or not repent? They repented, and they were delivered, and that was before 722 B.C., okay? So maybe 100 years later, 80, 90 years later, um, maybe around 630 B.C., certainly before 613 B.C., Nahum is giving his prophecy, okay? And so this is almost 100 years later. He's giving the prophecy to the same group of people, to Nineveh. Non-Christians, that's the capital of Assyria. That's a great city. The great, it would be like the Washington, D.C. today. The capital of the greatest empire in the then-known world. That's Nineveh. So here's a prophecy. This would be like a prophecy against Washington, D.C. Or the way I titled our sermon, God's Warning for Los Angeles. Because even though Los Angeles is not the, the political capital of the United States, it's certainly the, one, uh, the media capital or the inter- entertainment capital. And that has large influence and implications for not only the United States, but the world. And so here Nahum comes, and he has a word for this mighty city in the greatest empire of the day. And he says, you think you're in power? You need to recognize the true judge. And here are five things about this judge. Number one, verse two, the name of this judge. What's the name of this judge? In verse two, the first two words. Now, what's, what does it read in your text? The Lord. Now, you can see Lord in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's capitalized, sometimes it's not. Now, the word for Lord in Hebrew is Adon or Adonai, my Lord. Adonai is my Lord. That's not the word here. Whenever you see capitals, it's, that's not the word. The word is, you heard me read it. It's God's name. It's what? Yahweh. It's the name of God. So the Ten Commandments, do not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. It's not saying the Lord. It's saying his name. That's actually some of the reasons why they say the Lord, because they don't want to ever say his name. Because they might take it in vain. But that's not what God meant. He didn't mean don't say it. He just says don't say it empty and thoughtlessly or commonly as if it's not a big deal. So the first thing to know about the judge is that he has a name and his name is Yahweh. 
Now, God gives us his name, Yahweh, in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, where Moses says, when God tells Moses, go bust these people out of Egypt, go get your people out of Egypt, get my people out of Egypt. Moses says, if I go and tell the people, they say, what's this God's name? What am I going to say? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. So God ties his name Yahweh, the God who is, I am who I am, to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would bless all the nations of the earth through all the families of the earth through Abraham's offspring and give them a land, a kingdom. That's the God, the God of the promise, and his name is Yahweh. In the New Testament, we know him as Jesus. So Yahweh could be referring to the Father. It can be referring to the triune God as a whole. It could even refer to Jesus sometimes, just depending on the context. Just like the way we use the word God, right? And so here, his name is Yahweh. That's number one. Secondly, what, you're gonna, what you need to know secondly about this judge is that he's jealous and avenging. Look at verse two. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Jealous? Is it a sin to be jealous? Yes or no? Yes? No? Sometimes? Sometimes. The answer is sometimes. Sometimes it's a sin to be jealous. Jealousy is when you have a, a passion and a zeal for something that you think you own. So can that be right or wrong? It depends. Do you what? Do you own it? Right? It's something, I said, it's a passion for something you think you own. Now, if you truly own it, you have the right to be jealous for it. So um, when, I, when I was dating Frances, my wife, and when I was engaged to her, I did not own her. And she did not own me. We were not one. And so if another man wanted to pursue her for marriage, biblically speaking, she's not my wife. That's fair. Now, I could, be, I could still step up my game, perhaps, to try to win. But for me to say to the other person, she's mine, and you have no right to pursue her, is wrong. Because she's not my wife. But now that she is my wife, it would be wrong for me to not be jealous, right? I mean, if someone started pursuing her, it's like, ah, oh, I don't care. Fair game. What? That's, no, that's your wife. You are one with her. You, you know, um, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And so for me to not be jealous for her would show that I lack love, that I don't care about her, right? And so for God to be jealous, is it right or wrong? It depends. Well, first, we know it's God and he's holy, so we know it's right. So that's kind of the presupposition answer. But does God own the world? Does he own his people Israel? Is it right for him to be jealous when you ravage and you attack his people? Yes. Does God own the people who are not his covenant people? Yes, he owns all of creation. You're made in God's image if you're a human. And God owns you. He has a right to you. It's right for him to be jealous for his glory and his honor in your life, in your city, in your nation, in your society, in your church, in your family. God has that right. It's right for him to be jealous. It would be wrong for him to not be jealous. So when you step on other people, when you step on God's people, or those who are not his people made in his image, or you, you, um, you cause people to sin and you dishonor God in your life and in the lives of others, God is jealous. He's passionately angry. And so it doesn't just say jealous here in verse 2. 
Yahweh is a jealous and what? Avenging God. He's not a passive God who just gets mad and sits in a corner because he's powerless. God gets vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He is, in that sense, the truest and real avenger in that regard. He gets vengeance. He's an avenging God, and his vengeance is not petty. It's not unjust. It's not arbitrary and immature. His vengeance is just, righteous, perfect, holy, and loving. Vengeance that's loving. That's God's vengeance. It's right. And we'll get to righteousness in a second here. So we learn that, so secondly, we learn, firstly, we learn his name is Yahweh. Secondly, we learn that he's a jealous and avenging God. Thirdly, we learn that he's righteous. Look at verses three through seven. Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in power. Yahweh will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Okay, so God is vengeful. God takes vengeance, but is he quick to anger? Is he impatient and rash? And does he just lash out without thought and care? No. God is slow to what? He's slow to anger. Does God get angry, yes or no? Yes. He's righteously angry. But he is slow to anger. He is patient. So when God gets vengeance, when God declares judgment, when God sends you or someone you know to hell, he doesn't do it out of impatience. He doesn't do it out of a quick, thoughtless decision. He is slow to anger, but he's still great in power, and he will never leave one sin unpunished. You will never get away with any sin you commit. You'll get away from people, family, friends, church, society, the government, but you will never get away with any sin. God is perfectly righteous and vengeful. And so it talks about, we already read verses 4, 5, and 6 for the sake of time. We're going to move on, but you see that God is righteous even when he punishes. Look at verse 8. He will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. He will chase his enemies into darkness. He's going to destroy the capital, the Washington, D.C. of that day. He's going to destroy that capital. He's going to completely destroy it. And he's going to chase the enemies into darkness because he is righteous. He is a righteous God who judges righteously. Not only is God patient and righteous, so he's Yahweh, he's jealous and avenging, he's patient and righteous, he's also unstoppable. Look at verses 9 through 12. Listen to this and let this sink into your own heart. Whatever you plot against Yahweh, whatever you plot, let that word whatever hit you, whatever you plot, he will bring whatever you plot to what? To what? Complete destruction. And he will chase, or um, oppression will not rise up a second time. They will be consumed. What is God telling us here? God is unstoppable. The other analogy Jonathan Edwards uses in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is that your, your, your life is like a spider web. Or, well, he talks about the spider web, your strength. Your strength is like a spider web, and a rock is going to fall through the spider web, and your strength is like a spider web. Like you have no strength to stop God. Think of a big boulder, and you got your own little web that you weaved, and here's this huge boulder. It's about to come through that, that spider web. Do you have a chance to stop it? No, no chance at all. God is unstoppable. Whatever you plot against the Lord, whatever you plot against King Jesus, will go to complete destruction. You can't win. 
Los Angeles, you can't win. Bellflower, you can't win. United States of America, you can't win. Bethany Baptist Church, if you go against God, you can't win. He's unstoppable. If you're not a Christian, you need to recognize that Yahweh is God, not just for Christians. He's the only God. He's the true God. And he's speaking to you now. He's warning you that he will judge you. And our nation needs to know this. Our cities need to know this. Los Angeles needs to know. I'm talking about the 4 million people of Los Angeles, the 10 million in LA County. God will judge you for your sins, not just individually, but collectively. The sins you do together, the way you give into culture, and we need to make culture, but the way you perpetuate evil culture, oppressive culture, sinful patterns of thinking and living and feeling in this culture, what you contribute to it, you will answer for it. Not just as an individual, but as a society. You will answer to God. Cities will answer to God. Nations will answer to God. Communities will answer to God. You will answer to God. Fifthly, what else? there's a fifth thing we learn about Yahweh here in verse 12 and 13 and verse 15. Let's get a little bit of good news. This book is mostly bad news and judgment, but there's, here's a, a little glimmer of, of joy and light, and we need to let us influence our, our thinking. Look at verse 12. Now God stops talking to Nineveh and warning them, and he talks to his people Judah. This is what Yahweh says to you, Judah. Though they, though Nineveh and the Assyrians are strong and numerous against the covenant people, they will still be mowed down. The king, he'll pass away. Though I have punished you, Judah, for your sin and your idolatry, I will punish you no longer, my covenant community, for I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. They're oppressing you, Judah. I'm going to break them. Now, if you were in an oppressive regime, think maybe a Jewish community in Nazi Germany, or maybe even a Filipino community in, um, you know, in, in World War II in, in the Philippines when they, when they took over the Philippines. If you're in an oppressive community and then God says he's going to overthrow the oppressors, what should you feel? Joy, relief, gratitude, right? And that's what God's saying here. He's speaking an encouraging word to an oppressed people. They will be mowed down. The mightiest nation, the greatest city, the mightiest military, they're going to fall. Don't worry, Judah. I did judge you, but I'm not judging you anymore. I'm going to restore you. You broke my old Israelite covenant. I'm going to make a new Israelite covenant with you. I'm pulling from Jeremiah here now. I will make a new covenant with you. I will restore you. I will take them out. I will break the yoke. You guys know what a yoke is, right? Uh, you take two animals, uh, two oxen, and you put a yoke around them so that they, they, they march together in pulling um, pulling the, I want to say the threshing floor. What do you call the thing now? I'm forgetting what it's called. The plow. Yeah, the plow for it. Um, yeah, so, but pulling that together. So you have a yoke and it's, you know, this wooden thing on top to keep people together. It's basically oppressive. And sometimes when Nineveh or nations would conquer people, they would put people in yokes. And you'd literally carry a yoke as you were being marched off into captivity. And God says to Israel, to Judah, I'm going to break the yoke off of them. That's encouraging. God is gracious. He's going to deliver them. Look at verse 7. Though Yahweh is a God of judgment, he's jealous and avenging. Look at verse 7. Maybe the, the sweetest verse in the whole book. Yahweh is what? He's good. A stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. That's, the That's my main goal, right? The main application here is take refuge in Jesus. God is good. Yahweh is good. He's a stronghold in your distress. He cares for those 
who take refuge in him. But if you're going to take refuge in him, you have to understand these steps. And the first step is recognize the judge. Recognize that God is a God of grace, righteousness, and judgment. He will deliver his people. And so God gives an application. Let's get an application here to the church just before we move on. Look at verse 15. 115. This might be the main application to the church today. Because most of this is to non-Christian Los Angeles. Look at verse 15. BBC, Bethany Baptist Church, Judah, look to the mountains, the feet of the herald. It's also called the preacher. The feet of the herald who preaches what? Peace. Look to him. There's a first application. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He'll be entirely wiped out. So live with hope. Keep your head up. Keep your head up. I know you're going through distress. I know life is hard. I know that the covenant community doesn't seem to be holding sway in our community, in our culture, in our society today. But keep your head up. Look to the mountains. Look to the preachers. And so I'm talking about those behind the pulpit. Look to the gospelizers. Do you remember that? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach what? Good news. That's Isaiah. And Isaiah was written at least 50 years before this. So even Nahum would have been familiar with Isaiah's writings. And so when he says, look to the herald and the mountains, Isaiah said that that herald is preaching the gospel. Good news. So what's the first application here? What was the application for them? Look to the gospelizers who are going to preach good news to you. Judah, keep your head up. And what's the message for BBC today? Look to the gospelizers. Not only those behind a pulpit who preach for a really long time, every Sunday, but look to fellow Christians, church members, those who have the gospel, those who know the good news that God reigns, God rules, God will win, and he takes his people with him into his kingdom. That news, if you're a Christian, look to the mountains, look to gospelizers, and listen to the good news. Because faith comes by Hearing, hearing the good news, the word of Christ. So there's the first command. Before Christ came, look to the mountains, look to the preachers who are preaching that Christ is coming. Now what do we say? Look to those now who are preaching Christ, that he came and that he's coming again. There's a second application here, and I really like this one. Verse 15. Not only look to the mountains. You guys see a second command there? Give me in, in one word. What's the second command in verse 15? Celebrate. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Celebrate Passover. Celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering. Celebrate um, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents. Uh, Celebrate the different festivals. Why? Because they had what? Those festivals had meaning. And what, what did they mean? They all pointed to who? To God, to his kingdom, to his salvation. They pointed backwards and forwards. Do we have any festivals? or feasts to celebrate today as the covenant community, as the new Israelic covenant community? What do we celebrate? Somebody say it out loud. The Lord's Supper and baptism. The Lord's Day. Celebrate the Lord's Day. Celebrate communion. Remember that Christ's blood was spilled for you. Remember that his body was given for you as he breaks the bread. Remember that Christ died for you. Remember that he rose on a Sunday and that you're gathering every single Sunday to remember that Christ rose from the dead. Because guess what? This world is not heaven, right? Anyone going through hard times here in this church? 
Sure, everyone could raise their hand to that to some degree, right? This is not heaven. So what is God saying to them in Judah? Is Syria still there? I'm going to take them out. Just celebrate. Celebrate your festivals. Don't worry. You'll, you'll see the full meaning soon enough. Listen to the preachers. Listen to the gospel. Celebrate your festivals. That's a, an extremely contemporary application to the church. Listen to preaching. Celebrate the ordinances or the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Celebrate the gathering of the Lord's Day with God's people every single week. It will keep your head up. It will keep your vision clear. It will keep your step going forward, one step in front of the other, as you go through the difficulties of this life. Yahweh saves his people. He saves his people. He's good to his people because they take refuge in him. Now, why should you do this? He says, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Why should you celebrate? Why should you listen to the gospel? Because, at least for Judah, why should they listen to the gospel? That, that, why should they listen to the preaching? And why should they celebrate the festivals? According to verse 15. Because the wicked one is going to be what? What's that? Say it in your own words. The wicked one is going to be what? Destroyed, defeated, wiped out, and the kingdom will come. That's the same message today. Because is the, is the kingdom here in its fullness? Yes or no? No. It might be here inaugurated. I think it is. I teach that it is. But it's not here in its fullness. When we take the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus say? Um, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until I drink it with you anew in my Father's what? Kingdom. And what did Paul say? As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until? Until he comes. So, celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Celebrate your festivals. It keeps you looking forward to the second coming of Christ. All right. If you're a Christian here, it also says, there's another command, actually, one more. Fulfill your vows. So celebrate by hearing God's word, seeing God's word in the festivals, in the Lord's Supper, and the ordinances. But then as a Christian, fulfill your vows. Obey all that Christ commanded. Disciple one another. Influence each other towards Jesus. Influence your neighbors toward Jesus. Speak the gospel to them. Love your neighbors as yourself. Work hard in your workplace. Work hard in school. And then use what you learn and what you earn for the good of those around you. Fulfill your vows. You promised, if you're a Christian, to follow Christ, to take up your cross daily, didn't you? To obey everything that Christ commands? Did you promise that when you became a Christian? That he is Lord? Did you declare him Lord of your life? Fulfill your vows. Keep living as a Christian. Keep going. Keep obeying. Keep repenting. Keep trusting. Keep going. If you're discouraged, remember, God's reign is coming, and God's reign is here. Be encouraged. If you're feeling weak in your Christian life, like I've been feeling weak in my Christian life, remember the good news. Jesus is Lord, and he has strength to overcome our weakness. When we sang Jerusalem today, you brothers and sisters encouraged my soul. I was just feeling weak, and then I just, you guys were singing to me here about um, that, he's, that Christ is on the road to save us that he let the soldiers hold him down so that he could save us. And as I was thinking about that, I was just thinking, Lord, even in my weakness, you could save me. You can still save me. You can still save me today in the season of weakness spiritually. You can save me. If you're feeling weak, good news is that God can overcome your weakness. If you're stumbling in sin, Jesus will pick you up and cleanse you. He's faithful and just to cleanse you. If you're stubborn and you feel like you have a hard heart, Christ can soften your heart. 
he can, the hardest heart he can soften. If you're encouraged and strong, and, and strong spiritually right now, praise God, but Christ is your gospel. He's your good news, not yourself, not your strength, right? So again, I remind you, you'll face God's judgment for your evil. Los Angeles, those here, you'll face God's judgment for your evil. So take refuge in Jesus with his people. Christ died to give you refuge. Secondly, so recognize the judge. Secondly, envision. So recognize that Yahweh is judge. Secondly, envision the downfall. Look at chapter 2. Envision the downfall. Now here we get a description of the downfall of Nineveh. And here God calls them to prepare. This is like God taunting taunting, um, Nineveh. I'm not a Chicago Bulls fan or Michael Jordan. I guess I'm a Michael Jordan fan just because I'm a basketball fan. But let me tell you one story about Michael Jordan here because I think it illustrates this point. Michael Jordan used to try to get his opponents mad at him before basketball games. And some people thought he would try to get them mad so that they would be so mad that they would play bad. That's a strategy that some people use in sports. I think it's an effective one. But Michael Jordan would get people mad because he wanted them to focus and do their best. Because, because he wanted to beat them, and he wanted them to know that even when you come at me with your absolute best and focused effort, I'm still going to beat you. I just love that <laughs> as, a, as a competitive sports person. But here God is doing the same in verse 1. Look at verse 1. He's telling them to get ready. He's like, I want you, Nineveh, mighty army. I want you to do your best. So he says in verse 1, one who scatters is coming against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. I'm not trying to do a sneak attack. I'm warning you. Bring it. Bring your best. Come with it because the, the siege is coming and I'm coming to get you. Now, why does he summon them? Verse 2. And here's another hope for, for coven, the covenant community. Old Israeli covenant community. New Israeli covenant community now. For Yahweh will restore the majesty of Jacob. Here's why he's going to fight them. He's going to restore the majesty of Jacob, the kingdom, the kingship of Jacob. Yes, the majesty, the kingship of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. Even though people have broken down the kingdom of God, the world oppresses the kingdom of God, even in it, God will take the kingdoms of this world down because he will restore the kingdom, the kingship of Israel. And who's the king of Israel? Who is the one who hung and it said, king of the Jews? Jesus, he will attack his enemies because the kingdom will be finally restored. That's our future hope. Keep looking forward. But let, now, 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 the, now the battle's happening, and here's the prophecy of what the battle's going to be. So look at verses 3 through 6, and you need to imagine, okay? The point here, point number two, is envision the downfall. You have to use your imagination when you read these verses, okay? Picture it. Here's the battle. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire. Now, these are the invaders now. The fittings of the chariot, those are those from the outside, flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to the wall of the city, Nineveh, and their city, had 180 square miles, I think, was inside the city. It was this huge, massive wall. They race to its wall. And the wall is what protects the city, right? The protective shield is set in place. 
But then here it is, verse. So, so here's the battle. You got the Chaldean army, the Babylonian army, and the, the Medo-Persian army, the Medes, coming in. This is a battle at, in 613. That's fulfilled later. Nahum's prophesying here in 613 it happens. And so they're going to rush to battle. And when you're invading a, a city, the city's on a hill, there's walls, and you got archers there, you're at a disadvantage when you're invading. If you're on the defensive side, you're at an advantage because you're at a higher ground. You can shoot arrows over, and you, could just, you, have all the, you have all the leverage. So it's harder to invade a city. So here comes the armies trying to invade Nineveh, and it's hard because there's a wall. But God says Nineveh's going down, right? How are they going to go down with this mighty wall? Well, look at verse 6. Here's the turning point in the battle. The river gates are what? Opened, and the palace erodes away. Now, in Nahum's day, they had a system of canals and reservoirs um, that had been constructed in and around Nineveh. And the, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, um, a, a, the Koser River, Koser River, which it eventually ends up in the Tigris River, that Koser River ran through the city of Nineveh. Okay, and they had gates and dams that controlled the waterways. And by breaching these dams, the attackers could release floodwaters and threaten the city. And according to an ancient historian, Diodorus, Sicilus, Sicilus, Nineveh was destroyed when the Kosa River flooded and demolished a section of the city wall. So here's an ancient historian talking about the fall of Nineveh. It was, how did the wall fall down? A flood on the river that went through the wall. It eroded that section of the wall, and the soldiers were able to come in and take Nineveh. And that was, that, that specific is not prophesied here, though there's a, a, a word to the river here. The river gates are open in verse 6. So here they are. Here's the battle and the defeat. What are the results? When Nineveh is defeated, what happens? Look at verses 7 through 10. So now Nineveh is overran. It's overtaken. The chariots are inside the city now, pillaging. What happens? Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are now fleeing. Stop! Stop! They cry. But no one turns back. No soldiers have compassion. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure. An abundance of every precious thing. Desolation. Decimation. Devastation. Hearts melt. Knees tremble. Insides churn. Every face grows pale. Nineveh falls down. Nineveh falls. And then what does God do? He speaks and mocks them. He taunts them. Look at verses 11 and 12. Listen to God taunt this city, the city of man. Where's the lion's lair? Now, Nineveh, the Ninevites were known as lions, the mighty lion in terms of the empire, the then known world. And so he's going to even use their own mascot against them. Where's the lion's lair or the feeding ground of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness prowled and the lion's cub? with nothing to frighten them away. Where are you guys at? Where's the lions there? Where are these lions? The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. That's what they did in the past. It filled up dens with kill and its lairs with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of Yahweh of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. God graciously warns them, I'm coming. Now, the, the battle was in 613. Um, it's very likely that Nahum 
you know, prophesied around 6.30 or 6.26. Um, so maybe 13, 15 years ahead. I mean, imagine someone just saying, the U.S. is going to fall. I mean, the U.S. is right now, the, US, the United States of America today is, you know, politically and, um, you know, economically and militarily the, the most powerful nation in the world. But imagine when someone's saying, hey, in 13 years, the United States is going to be decimated. It's going to be like, it's going to lose all its riches and it's going to be defeated and their army is going to be decimated. The military is going to be decimated. Imagine that. It's almost unthinkable when you're the world power. That's just not going to, in 13 years, 10 years really, that's not going to happen. In, in the same way here, Nineveh is still powerful when Nahum is saying, you guys are going down. God is more powerful. So what does this mean for us? Realize that God will save his covenant people. Here under the old Israelic covenant given by Moses, God will save his new Israelic covenant people in Christ. If you're not a Christian, again, beware that Yahweh is against you. You need to realize the danger in and repent. If I could be very clear, if you're not a Christian, let me just say to you, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. He came to die for sinners. He came to live for sinners and die for sinners. He came, he lived the life you should have lived. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. So that if you repent from your sins and take refuge in Jesus, trust in Jesus, you will be saved. You'll face God's judgment for your evil unless you take refuge in Jesus and his people. So first, recognize the judge, Yahweh. Secondly, envision the downfall. And thirdly, lastly, tremble at the judgment. So there's the description of the downfall. And now let's just think about the judgment one more time. Chapter three, tremble at the judgment. First of all, if you're gonna be judged, you need to know that you're a sinner. So what's the sin? You need to see your sin. What's the sin of Nineveh? Look at verses one through four. Woe to the city of blood. So there it is. It's a, just think about their sins. They're a city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. Because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. So what's their sin? They shed a lot of blood. They lie. They deceive other nations, other towns, other cities. They plunder them. They conquer other cities unjustly. They rob them. They take their, their, their riches they, they always have prey. They're always oppressing somebody. They use their military might and intimidation. I mean, these people were, were so violent that they would flay the skin off of people alive. They would flay the skin off of people alive and, then, and use them to intimidate everyone else and scare everyone else. And then they'd go invade and do it anyways. They would amputate parts of their body without killing them just to let them suffer slowly. This is sinful. This is wicked. This is arrogant. And notice the analogy used in verse 4. This evil, this oppression, this sinful culture and perpetuation of sinful culture. What does he call it in verse 4? What, what is this sin called? Prostitution. The attractive mistress of sorcery. Treats their other clans like merchandise. The attract, I want to camp on that thought just for a little bit. So look up here for a second. The attractive mistress of sorcery. Attractive mistress? The world, the city, the empire has an allure, an attraction. 
that draws you to itself, into sexual immorality, not just physically, but spiritually, to commit adultery. That's why James says, do not love the world, or not, that's, um, John says, um, do not love the world, but um, James says, don't you know that anyone who loves the world is not a friend of God? And he says, you adulterers? He's not talking about physical adultery. When you worship other things, the things of this world, with God to the side, or God completely ignored, or God rejected, even good things, marriage is a good thing, church is a good thing, but if you worship those things and you marginalize God to the side, that's worldliness. That's prostitution. That's spiritual adultery. And that's the sin of the Ninevites. Does our culture hold out any attraction towards sin? I mean, David Wells defines worldliness this way, and this is true of all cultures. It's just different things that they do. But worldliness is the, the, the flow of ideas in the culture that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. That's worldliness. So it's not a thing. It's not like, oh, dancing is worldliness or movies is worldliness. That used to be like what the churches used to say back in the previous generations. It's not that. It's when sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. And for different cultures, they do it in different ways. Is that happening in our culture? Is that happening in L.A.? In Southeast L.A.? It is. And, and that's, that's the prostituting of truth to attract, attract others to sin. And God says, you need to see your sin. But then you don't only need to see your sin, you need to feel the threat. Look at verse 5. Here's the threat. We're going to go all the way to verse 17 here. Here's the threat. I'm against you. Because of your prostitution and sorcery, I'm against you. This is the declaration of Yahweh of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face. You want to be prostituting people and attracting them with your sexuality? Well, I'm going to lift your skirts over your face and embarrass you and display your nakedness to the nations, your shame to the kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to confront you, to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes? Then Thebes, that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river, her wall. Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put Libya, Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lot for, lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. And you will seek refuge from the enemy. Just a quick word here before we continue reading. This is similar to saying something like 9-11 or Hiroshima with the bomb that dropped. Uh, you know, something that you see and you, you know. Something historical. Thebes was a, a major city in Egypt. It fell down. And what is God saying? You remember Thebes? You remember how it fell down? That's how you're going to fall down. Washington, D.C., you remember 9-11? You remember the two towers falling down and crumbling? That's going to happen to the White House and the Capitol. I'm going to destroy your city. You remember the bomb? In Hiroshima, in the mushroom cloud that went up, that's your city, Los Angeles. That's what's going to happen to you. It's a vivid picture. He's saying, you just saw it happen a few generations ago. It's coming to you. Continuing on with the threat of judgment, verse 12. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. So we're just, I'm just going to plunder you, eat your fruit. Verse 13, look, your troops are like women among you. And he's just insulting them, right? Look, your, your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates, you're wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. You guys are weak here in verse 14. Draw water for the siege. 
Strengthen your fortresses. Again, he's telling them to step up. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. It doesn't matter what you do. It's going to devour you. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Go ahead. Multiply like the swarming locust. Do it. You have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. Your young lo- the young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locust, and your scribes like clouds of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, what do they do? They take off, and no one knows where they are. Your city is decimated. All your people, your leaders, your officials, they were there, and they all take off. It's a decimated, run-down city. A fallen nation. So you need to see your sin, Los Angeles. You need to feel the threat that God will judge you and you will lose. The great cities of this world, you know, I dream of taking my wife one day to a global city like Paris or London for a vacation. Now, why do, I was thinking, why do we love these cities? Why do we want to go there? Because of the culture, the power, the beauty, the influence, the monuments, the history, right? That's why you want to go, you want to see these things. They are a, a, an artifact of, of human culture. And human culture is not always a bad thing. You see a lot of beautiful things there because these are image bearers. You know, even next week, six of us are going to go to the Capitol, Washington, D.C. We'll see the Capitol and the White House will be there as well and the Lincoln Memorial and other things there. You'll see the seat of political power in our day. Washington, D.C. is a powerful city, is it not? Decisions come from Washington, D.C. that affect not only 330 million American residents, but billions across the globe for good or for ill. Does Washington, D.C. have power today, yes or no? Yes, it does. What about Los Angeles? Does Los Angeles have power? Tim Keller said, L.A. is important. L.A. is one of the two or three cultural capitals of the world. One of the two or three cities that most affect what people actually see on their screens and take into their minds and hearts culturally. Of course, it is also one of the key cities on the Pacific Rim. It's one of the most important cities in the world. Here we are, greater Los Angeles, 10 million people. And God says, judgment is coming to Los Angeles. Judgment is coming to the United States of America. Judgment is coming to all nations. Your only refuge is in Jesus and his people. So listen to this. You know what this sounds like? Does this remind you of any New Testament book? The fall of a city and this woe and judgment to a city? Revelation. Revelation 18. Listen to Revelation 18. It's talking about Babylon, but think of Babylon as the modern day world. Think of USA. Think of our country, the USA. Think of Los Angeles. Think of the major cities and cultures of this world. This is what God says about our culture. Now, why am I reading Revelation 18 here before we close? I want you to see through the lies that this world has helped you that attracts you. This world attracts you to certain ways of thinking. You need to see through it. Revelation helps you see through it. Listen to Revelation 18 and think about Los Angeles and the things you love about this world. After this, John writes, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, it has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. Los Angeles has fallen. The world has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. Then I heard another voice from heaven. 
to the church now. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day. Death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God judges, because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far off in fear of torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 21, then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, in this way, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeters, movie makers, culture makers in Los Angeles, the sound of the harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. No more weddings. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. That's Nahum. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all those slaughtered on the earth. That's Revelation 18. That's Nahum. That's this world. And God gives us revelation to see through the lies of the city. In Nahum, God told Judah that Nineveh, the biggest threat and power, was going down and that they would be restored. Judah needed to hear this because it's always initially easier. When you see a superpower, it's always initially easier to believe what you see over what God says, right? It's easier to believe what you see than what God says. In Revelation, God tells us that Los Angeles is going down, that the United States is going down, that all nations are going down. That's what he's telling us, that this world is going down, the cities of this world is going down, and his new covenant people will finally be restored. When you trust what God says, it's easier to, uh, it's easier to, see, to believe what you see than what you hear. But when you trust what God says, then what you see in light of all you know makes more sense. Then you could see this culture even better and clearer. The scales slowly come off your eyes and your faith matures. So brothers and sisters, Christian family, gospelize one another. Remind each other of the second coming in particular, that this world is not our home, that those who seem to thrive outside of the covenant are doomed to futility. Show them the short-sightedness of their envy. It makes no sense to be jealous of non-Christians. It doesn't make sense in light of the big picture, right? In light of the judgment to come. Read Psalm 73 and read the psalmist who uh, was jealous of the world. Read Revelation 18 with a church member this week and talk about the things about this world that draw you in and see through the lies that this world is pressing on you. One of my friends, a pastor in Texas, his name is uh, Gunner, he wrote, he wrote this. Every seven days, here's the application to the church. Listen to this, church. Every seven days, the church of Jesus Christ gathers to celebrate our risen king and announce to the world, announce to Babylon, announce to Los Angeles and each other that the darkness will not win.
That's why we gather. We're gathering, singing, hearing preaching, doing communion to announce to ourselves and to the, to the world, the world will not win. Nineveh will not win. Babylon will not win. Los Angeles will not win. The United States of America will not win. No nation here will win against God. So let's remember that and remind each other of that as a church family. If you're not a Christian, though the nations and cities will fall, you don't have to fall personally. You can repent from your sins and take refuge in Jesus. And so look at verses 18 and 19, last two verses of the passage. Nahum 3, 18 and 19, last two verses. This is speaking to you, non-Christian. This is speaking to the king of Assyria. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There's no remedy for your injury. You got a fatal wound. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? This is like cheering when Hitler dies, right? But here's what, so, so you're going to go down, the, the kings of this earth will go down, but I want you to hear this if you're not a Christian. You too have a fatal wound. There is no other healing for your wound. You're going to die. Do you realize that you're a sinner? You're a sinner. All, all, everyone here is a sinner. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that you're dying? Even if you're young? The babies are dying. They're growing old. They're moving along the lifespan, right? Do you realize that you're moving closer to death? That you, that you only have less time? You, you'll never have more time. You always say there's, there's always more time. There's, there's never more time, actually. There's only less time. At least, well, there's more time in eternity, but in this earth, there's only less time for you. There's never more time. You will die. You will be judged. And there's no escape. And it says in Revelation 20 that those who are apart from Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. If you're not a Christian, you might say, why does God have to be so angry and judge? He's so judgmental. I could never believe in an angry God. I can only believe in a forgiving and loving God. The God that you guys are talking about is not the God of the Bible. Well, I know it's in this passage of the Bible, but this doesn't make sense. If that's what you're thinking, let me just remind you of two things. Number one, all forgiveness of anything that's deeply wrong entails suffering on the forgiver's part. If you don't forgive people, then you become bitter, right? And you start to do evil to other people. So the only way to stop spreading bitterness and evil is to forgive. But if you've been deeply hurt by somebody and they've hurt you, cut you really badly, I'm not talking about a small infraction, but a real deep offense to you, it hurts to forgive them and to not get revenge. And so um, if we can't forgive without suffering... Why can't God forgive without sending his son to the cross to die for us? God cares, so God judges unrighteousness. Just like you would want justice if someone was a perpetrator to your home or to your loved one and, and violated, violated them criminally, you would want justice. You'd have a passion, a jealousy, a righteous jealousy for justice. And that's right, and that's what God has. So if you're saying, I, I don't want a God of justice, I just want a God of love, well, you can't have love without justice. Because justice is love acting for all the parts where love has failed. I think Martin Luther King Jr. said something like that. So if you're not a Christian, tremble at judgment. Realize that judgment is coming and turn to Jesus Christ. If you're a church, a church member here, let this sink in. Your neighbors are dying. 
Your church members are dying. We have an urgency because death is coming. Feel feel the urgency. Love them urgently and love each other with gospel intentionality. One more thing here on, on, um, on how to look at those who are judged for Christians. When you see those in the world and in the culture, non-Christians, who are going to be judged, don't look at them self-righteously. Are you better than non-Christians? Are you less deserving of judgment than non-Christians? Christians, answer me. Are you less deserving of judgment than non-Christians? No, you're not. When you see the, the spiritual prostitution that goes on in this world, look at it like, look at it like you're looking at a mirror. See your own heart. See the evil of your own life and repent freshly and then grieve for them. Don't look at people with condescension. All right, so if you'll face God's judgment for your evil, if you don't take refuge in Jesus with his people. How do you do that? Three things. First, recognize the judge. Second step, envision your downfall because you will die. And thirdly, tremble at your judgment. Take refuge in Jesus. If I told you that you would prematurely die if you go through this door, and you could go through either of these doors, you would always pick the door where you wouldn't die. But there's someone who picked the other door, and that's Christ, who walked through the door intentionally, walking towards his death, taking the cup of God's wrath and drinking it to the last drop. Not recklessly, but in one sense prematurely, 33 years old, 35 years old, he chooses to go to the cross and take the judgment of the avenging, jealous God so that you don't have to. Praise God for Jesus. What a savior. Though completely undeserved and unplanned, Christ went to the cross to die for our sins. So my closing application and call is go to Jesus for refuge in judgment. Find refuge in Jesus. If you don't, you will dishonor and disregard God as your judge. You'll incur more wrath in the judgment to come. And you'll be deluded and deceived as you continue through this life, walking down a reckless path to destruction. But if you take refuge in Jesus, you'll know that Christ can save you from death. You'll not incur more judgment. You can actually start to accumulate joy and rewards in heaven together in the new earth to come. And you'll honor God with your life and with his people, his church family. You will face God's judgment for your evil unless you take refuge in Jesus with his people. Father, help us to take refuge in Christ, we pray. Help us to tremble at judgment to come. Help us to tremble at your word and come to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.